Welcome back. It's Jokerman Podcast, which is the podcast that's about Bob Dylan's middle years, his middle career, and the albums that you don't know, maybe, and don't love, maybe. All of his bad albums. Well, yes, but also not, uh, not, yes. <laughs> That's, uh, what I mean to say is that, yes, I think all of Bob Dylan's bad albums come from the middle part of his career, but, um, not all of the middle of his career is bad albums. This is, yes, this is what I'm trying to say. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying there. Um, you know, the beginning and the end, solid gold. At least we can, I, I think we can say that. I, I believe sure. that's pretty much the case. Um, anyway, I'm Evan, and uh, always the other, the other host is here. I'm, I'm Ian, the one who wrote in Bernie Sanders for president. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just got um, blasted on Twitter by one of our um, 100, exactly 100, followers on twitter i don't even know if she follows us on twitter actually but she said that she um uh I w- i'll keep her name um out of out of my mouth but um a, a very nice follower <laughs> and a follower nicely said that she liked our podcast but then said you know I hope that you're joking that you didn't that one of you white men didn't write in Bernie Sanders out of some sort of misguided purity something like that. All 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 I would like to say is that I stand with Bob uh and his ironclad support for the state of Israel. Uh and in so doing, I voted to elect a Jewish man for president and I have nothing further to say. And you're not even the Jewish one of the two of us. <laughs> That's true. But uh, you know, it's something we didn't talk so much about last time on uh, Infidels. Something which occurred to me afterwards is, um, you know, we were sort of like wondering, uh, scratching our heads about like how weird it is that um, Bob Dylan would do a pro-Israel song right after he just did this uh, super religious Christian period of of music. Hmm. And um the answer is actually it's super obvious to me. I didn't I don't know why I didn't think of it before, but um the evangelicals love Israel more than Jews do. Right, right. So well, they do. Th- there's actually like a perfect they, precedent for it. Well, they they have a sort of they have a weird love for Israel. It's a very weird thing like sort why the Sort of a love hate. It's not. I would say it's not like a love hate. I don't think it's. It's just like a. It's like we love Israel for us. We or it's like them saying we love that for you. We love that you have Israel because you're the chosen people. They recognize that Jews are the chosen people. Evangelicals do, but but they. I, I don't know exactly how it works, but it's like you're chosen. But you're not you're not that chosen. You're like the the original chosen, and that's right. that's where they they're they're like respect respect right. original original OG chosen people. Um, we'll take it from here. Great job yeah, think, on your on your state project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great great job on uh, on your genocide. Um, 
I, I believe it has something to do with the uh, uh, like the the prophecy or what, I don't know I, whatever you want to call it. Like Jesus will come back when the Holy Land is occupied by the chosen people or something like right. that. So, so they 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 see the the nation state of Israel as you know an, another step towards the reincarnation of Paul Revere's uh, horse. Yes, <laughs> precisely. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, that that is how it is today. But I guess I'm you know I uh, I I, uh, I I was thinking about this last week when we were talking about it, and, and I guess we didn't get into it, but. I, I do. I, I don't. I don't know. To be honest, it was, it was forty years ago when infidels came out. At this point, um, whether the evangelicals had such a fervor for the state of Israel back then, because it, yeah, it, it is commonly accepted today that the biggest boosters of uh, of of the Holy Land are in fact Protestants, American Protestants, right? Um, but uh, but I don't. I, I guess I, I just don't know if that was the case in nineteen eighty three. Um, probably was to an extent. But um, maybe not quite to the same uh, fever pitch that we have here in today's uh, today's loaded geopolitical climate. So, although I guess what you're saying is that it's possible Bob Dylan was being cool, but he was liking Israel from an evangelical perspective before it was yes. cool. Yeah, we, we could say that Bob Dylan liked Israel before it was cool. Bob Dylan defended Israel before it was cool to do so. Right. Uh, that could be. I don't really know. Maybe we'll need to bring on senior Israel correspondent Ori Ravid to uh Right, to a, a good friend of, of our podcast, us. filmmaker Ori Ravid, who um, yes. is one of the tribe. Could you have guessed from his name? Today, uh, anyway... We're going to talk about the album that... Bob started playing infidel songs uh, uh, live on. Uh, yeah. So this is taken from the Infidels tour, basically, this live album. Right. His fourth live album in a decade? Within a decade? Yeah, because before the flood was 74. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. 1984's live album, Real Live. Quite a title. It's like a, a one of the titles you'd see on a bootleg of a live show. Like every right. every Bob Dylan bootleg CD, there's like you know dozens and dozens of them. Like have really stupid titles. <laughs> like one one of my favorite ones is um, the child. There's one that's just called the Child's Balloon. <laughs> <laughs> Live 1981, as you know, the right. lyric from um, "It's All Right, Ma." There's another one called Stadiums of the Damned, which is a lyric from uh, from Shot of Love, I think. Jesus. From that record. I forget which song. but um, well, it, it might even be from Trouble, the worst song on that record. Uh, Stadiums th- of the Damned. This is what you get when you have Bob Dylan's worst, most obsessive fans naming albums. Well, here's a good uh, one. Uh, Outfidels. This is a collection of all the outtakes from Infidels. Oh god! Come yeah. on. Um, there's more. There's there's a London train coming. 1981. Get it? It's like it's like slow train coming, but it's London. It's in London. And um, here's another one, which is really similar to what we have here, which is actually Bob Dylan shot of live. Shot of live, of course. Oh, because live, yeah, right. Because it's of the love. same word as love, right? But 
but live. Shot of live. And London mm. train coming. You get it instead of slow train? Isn't that good? That's... <laughs> but uh, this week we I... have a, 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 an official release live album called Real Live. like Sort of like real life. But real live. Or it's real live. Yeah, real right. live. This is uh, this is right out of the Columbia uh, marketing department, uh, r- right out of the um, as you know. <laughs> yeah, the same uh, wizards who came up with uh, <laughs> as you know. There's a new Bob Dylan album on Columbia <laughs> Records and Tapes. Anyways, yes, Bob's fourth live album in ten years, so one one every two and a half years. And curiously, his last live album besides the MTV Unplugged session, right? That's going to come 10 years after that? Yes, I think so. So he really was kind of... 95, I think that was. Right, something something like that. Um, Early, mid-90s. He was really kind of packing these live albums in for some period of time. And then... uh, and And then they just disappeared overnight. Which I think sort of speaks to his failing fortunes as as a commercial proposition. I, I think live albums, certainly this one, as as we'll probably get into here in a moment, uh, in general were, were sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, cash grab kind of things. Well, where the, um, this one. Yeah, this one in, in particular, particular. Where the, the label could package just, you know, whatever was going on recently and, and throw it on a, a piece of vinyl and get it out in time for the holiday season. And then it was a new a new Bob Dylan record to purchase and put under the Christmas tree. Uh, or the... Uh... <laughs> I just imagine waking up uh, Christmas morning in, a, in 1984 to discover Bob Dylan real life. <laughs> <laughs> like shoved into a stocking it's just like a hu- a big 12 by 12 square in the middle of the stocking <laughs> we we laugh about that but the the sad reality is that was christmas morning 1984 for tens of thousands of americans <laughs> <laughs> did this uh did this make it out in time for the christmas season cuz it would yeah, I be think so. I- I think it came out like in November or something like that. Okay. Um, let me see. Uh, but that's, I mean, that's the same reason that they um, uh, release all the bootleg series records around this same time of the year. Um, in They always come out in October or November because it's great to buy your, you know, 64-year-old pop, pop. father for, uh, for Christmas and or Hanukkah. Uh, yeah, real live released November twenty ninth, wow, nineteen eighty four. That's one day before my birthday, and ten years before my my birthday. Your exactly. Date of birth. Yeah, November thirtieth, ninety four. That's when I was born. So, yeah. so, so, <laughs> fucking so nothing. <laughs> that does that doesn't mean anything. This but is ten years and one day before the birth of the second Joker man. Yeah, I need to do a lot of. Uh, numerology type of stuff to because that's eleven, you know, ten plus one. That's eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, nine songs on this right. How many songs are on here? Ten. Ten. Okay. 
And how many of them are awful? <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, how many? How many stars will it, it? There are ten songs, and how many stars will it be awarded? And then that equals ten years and a certain number of days before your actual date of birth. Sure, I actually prefer not to associate the advent of my life on this planet at all with this record. <laughs> That's fair enough. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I I, I think that uh, that that this really does kind of mark the the definitive conclusion of, of Bob's career as like a viable commercial prospect for the Columbia records, uh, corporation, um, which, you know, we can kind of see in, in the ensuing couple years, there are no more live records and the albums that start coming out definitely start to, you know, as, as, um, as, as deep down the rabbit hole as we've gone so far, we're about to, we're about to plunge, even deeper uh, beginning uh, in these next couple of weeks. You start so. hearing rumblings of phrases like spent force or mm-hmm. has been or yes. uh, irrelevant. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, th- these things are, you know, they hurt to hear. You wince. One winces a little when you hear things like that. Yes. And um, this record I I have to imagine it, it came out as a result um a little bit overzealous uh like an overzealous move on the part of the people at Columbia uh who heard some things about how Infidels was the best Bob Dylan uh record since you know, blood on the tracks, you could say, or whatever. That old, that tired thing that everyone drags out. Best since blood on the tracks. Um, probably, uh, it, to many people it was, but also you have to keep in mind that the three before this one were the Christian records. Mm. So some people probably just weren't interested in those at all. This is a Infidel's... Infidels is a return to the secular style for Bob Dylan, uh, Mm. lyrically. And one kind of gets this weird feeling like the people at Columbia had no reference point at all for what a successful Bob Dylan album looks like in 1984 or 80 in the eighties at all, or for that matter, since desire, it's been hard to like find a recognizable Bob Dylan as a, as a commercial entity. If that, uh, I've said it clumsily, but, um, I think you know what I'm saying. Yeah. He's, 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 he's not a, uh, he he's no longer up with the times in the in the pop music sphere, and even if he were, he's no longer producing top notch material, at least with the level of regularity that they had come to expect from him at this point. Obviously, you get your Joker mans every once in a while, uh, but then you also get your neighborhood bullies. Yes, there's there's that aspect of it, but it seems kind of like Desire and the Rolling Thunder era and 
blood on the tracks, especially. It's like this is a period where Bob Dylan is totally coming into his own as a mature, uh, a grown-up songwriter. He seems to have found his voice and um, his his place as a more matured artist. And for whatever reason, the that that was elusive, or like finding a balance within that proved to be elusive. Where like it's strange, but I think when he was younger than where we find him at this point, he was somehow able to pull off a sense of like dignity and grace, uh, like of an older man. Where then in the in these this period in the early eighties, it seems like a, a man who is trying to be younger and. Uh, it doesn't work. Yeah, I, I I see what you're saying. I I this I I haven't thought of it along these lines, but I think it makes a lot of sense. Like young young Bob Dylan is wise beyond his years, right? He's precocious. He's he's a a preternatural lyrical talent and and the the face of the counterculture. And old Bob Dylan is a is an elder statesman. You know, he's he's wizened and he's seen it all and he's been around the world and. Uh, you know, is is almost like a, like a, um, uh, like a like a metaphysical presence at this point. You know, like a like a spirit, a, a geist or something. Mm-hmm. But but in between young Bob Dylan and old Bob Dylan, we have middle aged Bob Dylan, <laughs> and he's neither a young man uh, nor is he quite an old man uh, yet. And and it's a very sort of awkward interstitial phase where. He can't decide. The record label can't decide. No one knows. You know, is this a guy who is, uh, who is, who is still who he was, uh, or is this just who he's going to be from now on? And so you get this period of fifteen, twenty years that we're, you know, really beginning to embark on in, uh, in the old Joker Man catalog uh, of just these very odd fits and starts, where you know, just when you just when you get started down a new, you know, seemingly fertile commercial direction, or excuse me, uh, seemingly fertile artistic direction, you know, commercial goes along with that, you know, like the Christian phase, uh, then there's a hard right turn right out of that. You have, like we we touched on at the beginning of uh, this episode, that the beginning and the end, the most recent and the earliest, you know, the early part of Bob Dylan's career are great. Um, and have some of his best things he's ever done, like more, more solid gold hits per, uh, per minute than, than the middle, which is you know famously rockier. That's the whole point of our show. But yes. um, the question of why this happens to so many rock and roll, so many music icon level artists in the 80s is still i think a sort of mysterious thing there's no one answer to why the 1980s were so treacherous creatively um a time for these people who for so many people who really invented rock and roll but um one thing that i heard uh, i watched recently an interview with van morrison 
<laughs> of course. I'm like deep, deep down the rabbit hole with Van Morrison. Stay um, tuned for the uh, the Jokerman uh, spinoff podcast about Van Morrison. Yeah, Into the Music. Evan just talks about Van Morrison by himself. <laughs> to to nobody. Yeah. Yeah. Ian, like, might just, he might be there. He might be, like, leaving the room. Uh, but uh, in this interview, this very, like, aggressive British uh, interviewer uh, asked him, like, do you think there's any hope left for rock and roll? Or, like, is rock and roll dead? And is it is, is it over? And, like... What else? I'm not committing to doing a British accent, but um, she was like, why do you think rock and roll stopped? Or some some really like leading question like that. And he said, well, I think rock and roll stopped when, when they got rid of the roll. Okay. And uh, then he went on to say that he felt that, I think he was basically talking about this period, that that rock became something that was more... Um, all-encompassing, that it included the worst and the best. It became um, less specific. Um, And I feel like in the 80s, someone like Bob Dylan, who uh, had such a a sensitive finger on the pulse of the way things were flowing, of culture and so on, um, in his early years... It, it must have just become overwhelming to him and to a lot of other artists. Um, when they realize, they look around, you know, these people are aware of what's going on and they see so many possibilities breaking open, so many different genres and subgenres appearing, so many different new ways of doing rock and roll, um, where it's starting to just become rock. And I think some artists followed their instincts of what they knew worked for them. Like Van Morrison was successful in the eighties because he didn't, he wasn't swayed by these trends. Really. He kept doing what he always did. Mm. Um, just doing soul singing basically. Um, but Bob Dylan and so many others did feel, I think a little bit of like a competitive pressure which they bit off more than they could chew a lot of the time. It's it's a losing battle. Just do be yourself. But uh, here we are with Bob Dylan like rehashing his old songs with this really incongruous '80s shredding guitar. Yeah, I I think you're on to something there. I think that the problem in in general is that like you know you mentioned the eighties were such a treacherous period for these elder statesmen of the, you know, 60s scene. I don't, I just, I don't think that the template had been, had been created yet for how you age gracefully as a, as a rock and roller. You know, this was the first kind of wave. It is the first time. Yeah. Yeah. This is the first time that people are that, you know, that 20 something year old cutting edge avant-garde rock and rollers are aging into their, you know, into their, into their forties and fifties. And so you've got Bob doing one thing, you've got Lou doing another. Well, yeah. Uh, you've got, true. even you've Lou, got, even Lou Reed didn't escape the eighties in, in terms of his, uh, one, like his worst stuff is from the eighties, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, you've got Ms. the blue Trial. mask in Oh, 82. the blue mask well, is, is well, one yeah, of the best. Well, 
Well, of course. You know, you've got the Blue Mask in 82, and then you've got New York in 89, I think. Yeah, but, but in, in the between, middle, you've got Mistrial. Yeah, it's just a, it's just and, such um, a, a, a I mean, that's, weird hodgepodge. That's the worst one. I mean, uh, New Sensations is good, but um, you could you could say bad things about my red joystick, I guess. <laughs> you can, um, one could. I like that record, actually, um, New Sensations, quite a bit. But uh, the um, the pressure to stay cutting edge, Bob Dylan is some. He's somehow succumbed to this pressure to be cutting edge um, when it would have probably suited him better to do something that was less demanding on him um, and and do what he did. It's strange because he seemed to be so able to... It seemed like he figured this out as early as Nashville Skyline. Like, oh, I don't have to strain and and try to reach the same, like, high energy heights of what's happening around me in, in rock music right now. Right. I right. can do something totally different and stand out that way. But um cocaine's a hell of a drug. I don't know. I mean <laughs> I, I don't want to speculate too much on that, but like I guess he's just uh at this point feeling like he he doesn't want to be left behind. So he wants to get in, in in on the stadium rock experience like I'm Bob Dylan why of course I should be doing this yeah I, I I think that like I think really like he's he's hit an extended losing streak here for the first time in his career like you know the 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 first time that he went through sort of a critical um, or commercial critical and commercial um, ebb uh, you know, in, in your 1970 to 1974 period, that was sort of conscious, that was a conscious decision on his part to withdraw from the zeitgeist and just kind of, you know, uh, just zone in on his own personal life and, and excise all of these hippies and hangers on uh, that he was totally sick of. And, and so that's why he isn't recording albums and that's why he's doing Pat Garrett and that's why he's, um, you know, just hold up there in... Um, in Woodstock, um, and then he just comes back all of a sudden, like a like a bolt of lightning, with uh, with Before the Flood, and then with uh, Blood on the Tracks, and then with uh, the Basement Tapes. Well, and Before like, the boom, Flood, boom, boom, boom. and um, and with Planet Waves. What? <laughs> yeah. Planet Waves, I think, uh, <laughs> is an underappreciated record, obviously, but in terms of commercial and critical. Uh, success uh, before the flood, sure. yeah. B- blood on the tracks, and uh, basement tapes are just like a bolt of lightning in the span of eighteen months, and he's back on top of the world. Mm-hmm. And so he's done the same kind of thing here, where like he's he's withdrawn from the scene uh, with his Christian period, uh, and now he's he's attempted his nineteen eighties version of blood on the tracks, I think, with infidels to an extent, and it hasn't completely worked out for him and and so now he's going to try to re-energize his career with the 1980s version of before the flood i know that the timeline is not matching up exactly but i think there's some interesting um pinpoints so you're saying uh, you know, that so, this is like his his before the flood for the 80s yeah yeah exactly like you know he he's like hey i'm like you just said i'm bob dylan i'm getting up on the stage in front of thousands <laughs> of people and i'm gonna play a cool 
badass hard rock show filled with all the classics, and you're all going to love it because I'm Bob Dylan, and these are the greatest songs that have ever been written. And uh, and and you know that worked to an extent on Before the Flood. I think, like uh, like we talked about it, it's maybe not as successful in 2020 as it was in 1974. But at the time, it was quite successful. Real Live is just it's it, that that formula is not functioning anymore. Like in 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 sports in in basketball, there's this concept of like the the flip a switch team, uh, which is like a you know like um, the the Golden State Warriors uh, from the last couple of years were an example of a flip a switch team, uh, in that they could just sort of uh, just plot along throughout the regular season and not really try, um, and then all of a sudden just one night decide we're going to flip the switch and we're all of a sudden we're on top of the world and we're you know we're the 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 most dominant you know uh, just uh, best possible team imaginable and without mm. even without even having to warm up we're we're back on top of the things right uh, and I think I think Bob in 1974-75, he he flipped switch, basically. He he had withdrawn from the world, and then he decided one day, hey, you know what? I want to be making money. I want to be back in the, in the, uh, you know, the the center of the, of the critical scene. And, uh, and so he, he, you know, he reels off several classic albums in the span of two years, basically. Um, And, uh, and, and so I think, I think this Infidel's real live Empire Burlesque that we're going to get into next week, uh, I think this period is is him attempting to do the same thing. It's a decade later. He's going to flip the switch again. He went off on his own. He did his own weird thing with the Christian stuff. Now he's back writing normal songs. He's back playing you know real rock and roll shows with the with the Bob Dylan classics live, and he's trying to flip that switch. And he's realizing at this point, or he he does realize at this point after these things are coming out, is he he flips that switch and it's it's and not nothing's happening. And yeah, there's he he can't do it anymore. Something something has happened. It- it reminds me of this quote um, by a f- famous uh, f- filmmaker, Howard Hawks, which is, uh, a good movie is three good scenes and no bad scenes. And uh, I feel like something like uh, Planet Waves is something like, it gets by because it has no bad scenes. It's fine. There's a couple good songs. There's like three good things on it nothing really bad but uh and a desire i think there's nothing really bad on that record and after desire um his he's not making howard hawks approved records anymore there are bad scenes so to speak yes um and i think that's what makes this switch flipping thing uh, it doesn't happen anymore. It doesn't work for him anymore. He's, yeah. and, and the religious stuff, I think, I mean, you could very cynically, but you could say, look at that and and see that period as a kind of way to paper over this the, those these problems by attaching some deeper spiritual thing to it, almost like a big spiritual disclaimer, like, oh, if you don't like some of this stuff, it's because you are a sinner. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that the um, the religious stuff, to me, you know, now that we've talked about it and, and uh, wrestled with it and stuff, like, it was... it, it 
to me, no one knows why he did it. You know what? What in his heart of hearts was was directing him in that direction? But it it seems like it was like a just another like a new way for him to energize his writing process. Like um, Slow Train Coming uh, was his tw- his yeah his nineteenth studio album um, in nineteen seventy nine. Um, and he'd only been recording albums for 15 years, 14 years, something like, or yeah, I guess, no, 15, 16 years, whatever. It's, he, he'd been putting out more than one studio album a year uh, for, for close to two decades at that point. Like he had, he'd said everything he wanted to say about love and about the culture and about, you know, whatever. And so, um, so he, he sort of latched on to this Christian thing, uh, in my conception, as a way to re-energize his songwriting process and give him something else to, to be creative about. And, um, and, uh, and then, and, and then, you know, he, he sort of tapped that, that, that vein ran dry relatively quickly. Shot of Love, it's already running extremely dry, you know, just, just 18 months later. Um, and then, and then he's, he's just shunted back into the same position he was in after Street Legal, where like, you know, what, now what do I write? I'm I'm still in the same kind of position and he can, like, like we've said, he can reel off tracks like Joker Man. Um, but those are becoming harder and harder for him. And, and, um, it's, uh, the, the hit to miss ratio is becoming, uh, much, uh, it's not looking as good as it once did. And you you know that we're not even close to being out of the woods yet because no, we're, 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 we're long ways we're, away from the bottom. The next records, it's like you want to hear this story and, and think, well, then out of, you know, against anyone's ex, everyone's expectations, he pulled it off again. But, um, the next record, of course, after this live record is Empire Burlesque. So, <laughs> Without further ado, I think we should just t- start to talk about uh, what we have on our plate right now. What is it like in the year of our Lord, 2020, when this is being recorded, to listen to the 1984 Bob Dylan live record, Real Live? Um, what, what ha- what's that like to do? So, w- let's begin. First track, Highway 61 Revisited. That old chestnut. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, uh, I'll, I'll keep it brief. Um, Highway 61 Revisited on here is like a 80s Chuck Berry um, bar band version of Highway 61. Um, no slide whistle or whatever that's called to speak of. Um, it's just, it's just rocking, rocking, rolling. It's, it's someone's idea of rock and rolling in, in 1984. Yeah. Yeah. It, it introduces the, the, whatever you want to call it, the, the sonic template or the guiding principle or just the overall vibe. Well, what are these this... shows? I suppose we should just make clear when they were recorded and where. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these are these are shows recorded in uh the summer of 1984 in England. Um most of the album recorded at Wembley Stadium on July 7th, uh, although there's a couple tracks from 
Slane Castle in Ireland. Right. On July 5th. <laughs> there was something I saw. Um, it was like a music magazine um, from that year. H- Hot Press. And he's the, on the cover. And it says, Tangled Up in Slane. <laughs> <laughs> More yeah. of that, Jesus. More of that beautiful. People know how to write about Bob Dylan. Uh, Must have been so good to be a music writer in 1984 in yeah, England. typing on like a literal typewriter, probably just like tangled up in slain. Slain. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so these are these are these are shows on a European tour in in uh, well, they, I mean these are shows in in the UK. Part of a European tour uh, that Bob embarked on in the summer of 1984, post Infidels, um, and uh, and and his band here. You know, as as we're aware by now, Bob likes to sort of just he doesn't have a band. He he is Bob, and then he just assembles a, a group of players as as it suits him for a particular period of time. And this uh, this period of time, I think the most notable aspect, you know, and, and certainly on this album, the most notable aspect is the presence of Mick Taylor, uh, former guitarist Mick of Taylor. Uh, Mick Taylor. Yes, the former guitarist of the Rolling Stones, uh, who uh, who who backed Bob here on this uh, on this tour with his his rockin' rollin' uh, very present uh, guitar. Yeah. Sound, yeah, um, and uh, you know, to uh, maybe maybe to the detriment of some of these songs. So this is this is a very guitar uh, guitar heavy sound, guitar heavy band. Uh, lots of lots of soloing. Uh, I've got cock rock yeah. written in my notes several cock times. Rock. I mean, which when you're talking about the Rolling Stones, that's part and parcel. That's cock and penis of seeing them, <laughs> but uh, cock and penis. Yeah. That's uh, what you expect, is what I mean. And and right. and yet, <laughs> um, uh, but when you see Bob Dylan uh, play or you go to see him play, it's like you know you want. I think in in at this point you expect some rock heroics this is you know a post before the flood world but not this way not <laughs> this one not like this i'm list- i'm sitting here like feeling what it must have felt like to the those poor cucks who were sad when he first went electric what i'm feeling right now is maybe what those people <laughs> felt uh you know, like, oh, oh, ugh. Right. I thought you were going to do something better than that. I thought you were going to do something smarter or like, I thought you, know, you were cool. I thought you were cool, Bob. But no, he's just, he just wants to play like, like the Stray Cats or he wants to play sweetie baby type of music <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it it's it's unclear what the what the motivating decision was behind just whatever he was pursuing on this album and on this tour on this tour first and foremost and this album was just well, kind of prepackaged well isn't it it's actually super clear i think it's just like under it's unimpressive is what the choice was it's like well 
I like, you know, I like the hard rock and blues stuff. You know, this is Bob talking. And so, like, of course, I want to get, like, the biggest, baddest blues, like, blues rockin' guitarist I can get more firepower. You know, that's, it's gonna help me. Right. And if you're someone like, again, uh, yes, I mean, Van Morrison appears on this. He's actually (laughs) there. But if you're like Van Morrison, you, uh, Van Morrison, like, it sounds like any number of blues, le- insert blues legend here. He, he sounds like, uh, he, he's got that voice. Bob Dylan doesn't sure. have that voice. First of all, as much as he's, uh, in, invested in the, the mythos and has been inspired by great bluesmen and, and of legend, um, he doesn't sound that way. And, uh, no amount of guitar firepower in the world is going to change that. Right. Yeah. 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 I, I see what you, yeah. Okay. So I, I see what you mean about, about Bob just kind of wanting to put together this rootin' tootin' badass bluesman band. It seems like he's going, he's trying to, he's overcompensating. Like he's, he knows on some level that he doesn't really like sound that way, so he's just like, "Well, I'll just play real hard. I'll have a band that can just bang it out." Right. Well, so maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. Is like, uh, you know, the, the 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 music is on on this record on this tour is is very sort of like self consciously macho and muscular, uh, and and leans heavily on on the guitar solo, um, and uh, it's just you know it's not very nuanced i guess i guess we could say but bob himself just does not sound engaged in most of these songs on the on the vocal takes and and he isn't the one that's doing the soloing either you know he's just up there kind of strumming along on a rhythm guitar uh, or an acoustic um you know on, on a couple of the acoustic songs um he he's just he's he's almost like a passive uh, observer of his own songs right um, it's weird in, in, to hear in most part and and Highway sixty one I think is this is the perfect kind of um, uh, the perfect example of this here on the first song, um, it, just to sort of introduce a bit of a gimmick that uh, I I have uh, adopted at least for our discussion of this album. Please, uh, you know I went back and listened to all of the other live versions of the songs that are included here, and uh, just sort of compared them, uh, you know on on your Before the Flood, Hard Rain, and Budokan. And um, and uh, you know, sort of wanted to compare and, and see which one worked worked better for me. Highway 61, first song on this album, has only ever or had only ever been performed uh, live or included live on the Before the Flood album, and uh, and that one just is so much more, e- even as flawed an album as Before the Flood is, I think, which is really just a one note kind of, you know, cocaine bender kind of album. Um, there is, there is like Bob himself sounds in that, like he's, he's there, he's trying to do something with this album, with that album, um, as, uh, as, as, uh, sort of one note as it can be. And here he's just like, he, he's barely even there. It's, it's just like him going through the motions. He's coasting on, on, on the guitar and on the, on the hard rock, uh, presentation of the song. Whereas, before 
I mean, this song, and we'll get into this on other tracks, I think, that are older, um, that appear on, on this record. Um, this song really derives its power from the attitude of the of set of his delivery of the lyrics mm-hmm. i don't think that it has anything going for it really that make that anything to set it apart from a an endless list of similar barn burner type rock and tunes um as you know passable as those may be that's right. not the point of that's not why bob dylan ever made a name for himself um, as as much as he looks up to those those people who invented that style, um, he was able to do these lyrics that uh, and deliver them in such a way that was like every lyrical. This, I mean, this is a song that's full of jokes and full of humor and like mm-hmm. these little pretzel like uh, uh, wordplay moments, things like that. The sun's not yellow, it's chicken. I mean, great, great stuff. We love it. And it's just like, I don't know what this version or v- other versions similar to it that appear on this record. I they think really the sun's all- not yellow, it's chicken is actually Tombstone Blues, but that's at the end oh, of the record. Okay. Um, yeah, never mind. What's a, what's a one from this? God said to Abraham, kill, kill me, me son. son. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're, <laughs> that's a great one. Abe said, God, you must be putting me on. Yeah. God said, no. Abe said, what? God said, you, you can, can do, do what you, what you want, want Abe, but next time you see, see me, me coming, you, you better, better run. run. Like, yeah, I mean, that's so funny. Or the, one, the line about like a thousand telephones that don't ring and like right. 40 red, white, and blue shoestrings. Shoestrings. Is that what he yeah. says? Anyway, great stuff. Um, it's kind of, this record is bookended actually with two examples of really similar dud approaches to, to songs from the same era. But, um, all these do really is to answer a question nobody asked, which is what if you perform these songs like they weren't special? (laughs) Yeah, basically. And the answer is like what you'd imagine. I yeah. think with that, we can go to the next one. Yes, track two. Uh, the inimitable Maggie's Farm, making its third appearance on the four live albums. One of Barack Obama's favorite songs. Is that true? Apparently, that's what he would have us believe. Hmm. I remember one of the early Obama, like, what are my favorite songs? Type of things <laughs> that he would do. Um, his like list. You know, I, I just read actually on, <laughs> I, just, I just read on Michael Imperioli's Instagram oh. that this is, this is one of Joe Biden's favorite Bob Dylan what songs. What is he doing? What, what is Michael Imperioli doing on there? That's just like, it's like a weird bit that where he's saying, oh yeah, by the way, Joe Biden loves Loveless by MPV. <laughs> Uh, there's yeah, there's there's a weird sort of um, uh, like um, no, he doesn't. He doesn't love that. Well, there's a there's a weird like um, uh, juxtaposition between um, apparently Joe Biden was a cool like new wave uh, post punk guy what? in the '80s, but but he's also according to Michael Imperial's oh. Instagrams, but he's also 
Um, you had me there. Uh, he's also the favorite candidate of noted cool people, uh, the Sopranos, um, yeah, all of whom, yeah. as we know, are, are characters that we should empathize with and think are good and are people that we want to emulate in our own day-to-day behavior. Right, right. And he, he even made like a point saying like something about – David Chase said something like Tony would have – thought Donald Trump was full of shit and it's like yes first of all no <laughs> no he wouldn't I don't care if David Chase says that I don't care if David Tony Chase Soprano. Cre- created to- I mean sure he created to- like he I don't know Jesus Christ to- to- it doesn't matter and it's very stupid to even have have these conversations in the first place but I do know one thing for certain and that is that Tony Soprano would never in a million years have cast a vote to elect Hillary Clinton president of the United States. Yes. No. No. <laughs> and Meadow would have made a scene at the dinner table. Maggie's Farm, Bob Dylan. <laughs> the the sort of uh original original uh statement of intent of like Bob Dylan being a, a snot-nosed, precocious brat who's going to take the world by storm mm. with rock and roll. And, uh, again, it just doesn't have that same shine to it when you've already done the deed, brother. You've already made it. Live albums are interesting to talk about because there are two actual things that you're talking about here, right? You're talking about one thing is is the al- is the album itself, like the the curated collection of songs that appear on this you know packaged product to be to be bought and sold. Uh, but but two is you know the the set list that is being performed for audiences who are purchasing tickets to go see you play these songs live. You know, so there are two different kinds of um, considerations to, to have in mind here. Maggie's Farm, like, you know, if you were buying a ticket to go see Bob Dylan in 1984, sure, like, you, Maggie's you Farm. You want to see it, yeah. Yeah, you want to see it. You know, it, it's, uh, we, we love it, folks. And it's, um, it's a song that is relatable, or it's like a crowd pleaser because people want to feel that, that punk rock energy from this song. Right. I get why you perform it in concert at this particular moment in time, absolutely. Why you include it on the live record, however, mm. when it's the third time that this song has been included on your last three live albums. We just had this in Budokan in 79, and then we had it in Hard Rain earlier than that in 76. Mm. That is a question that I, I, I do not, for the life of me, know, particularly when this rendition of Maggie's Farm is so... it Like, it it's just a bad version of the original bringing it all back home cut. Like, there's no... There's no lyrical change. There's no interesting reinterpretation of the arrangement. There's no, there's like, there's nothing. The the only thing that's different about this is, is again, this like, you know, just totally, you know, uh, just not appropriate bullshit kind of cock rock sound with, with the guitar soloing and stuff. The, the, the lyrics are all identical. The arrangement is all the same. And it's, it's just such a, it's 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 the most inessential of inessential possible versions of this song, uh, particularly on the heels of something like Budokan, which presented this song in such a radically <laughs> dissimilar kind of approach with the fucking disco, uh, uh, the disco string shit, and the uh, you know the the Nile Rodgers kind of uh, chic guitar tone like. 
that was such a such a like insane off the wall batshit crazy version of that track and then just to get this completely neutered version I mean, a couple it's, years it's later it's the same as the last song as as the first song it's the same approach it's this like rip roaring rock and roll uh where we come from where you where we come from uh Ian and I mm. um in Agora in Agora Hills California our our hometown de facto hometown um there's a place the Canyon Club Canyon Club Wizen Center Canyon Club uh and this is a place where if you're driving down the 101 freeway um, there is a huge marquee type sign on the mm-hmm. left side of uh, if you're heading south, and it, yes. it will say the names of, of bands and acts that are going to appear at the Canyon Club, and it's always like people who you recognize, but uh, usually not huge names, like names that are familiar to you, but people who didn't escape fully this period in the eighties, like their careers didn't recover in the same way Bob Dylan's career did. Uh, people like Todd Rundgren and, um, X and, uh, vanilla ice. I don't know. Like (laughs) these are the type of people and bands. I actually saw the zombies there once which was really cool. Like sometimes you'll get a really random, you'll be like, what? And they'll play like some really good band, you know, is playing at the Canyon club. But a lot of the times what you're seeing there is sort of middle to post middle age, sort of washed up, uh, acts from 30, 40 years ago who are, um, Playing the hits in a very workmanlike fashion. And it feels like in an alternate history, like this record is just like the rest of Bob Dylan's career. And it, it, and, it, and these things don't even come out. Like he's just, he just does this forevermore. Playing the Canyon Club. Yeah. Not, not what you like to see from Bob. I don't know. No, the way to say it, this of the of the three versions of Maggie's Farm, by my estimation at least, this is far and away the least, uh, least essential, uh, the the worst. Uh, Budokan is is absolutely number one with a bullet in my heart, and then the that that classic hard rain sound with the sort of rush through the last line in the verse uh, approach that he uses on several songs on that record comes in. At a at a solid number two, and this is just you know, ball it up, throw it in the garbage, folks. We don't we don't need it. Let's move on to the next tune, I guess. Yeah, I uh, and gonna, I. Uh, we're gonna get we're gonna get into the infidels section of yeah. this album. I understand why Jokerman didn't uh, appear. I guess on on this live record. I guess the reason is because the we we both listened to. It's because it's good. No, it's because the intro to it is totally fucked up. Um, they don't come. They don't. They are not together on the intro. So Bob mm-hmm. like starts and then the band comes in. It sounds very wonky. But the rest right, of it is, they, is good. 
they put this they put this album together from cuts from two two different shows two different nights like if the Wembley version was fucked then they could have gotten the right they ostensibly could have gotten the version from from old Slain right right oh <laughs> from tangled up in Slain Slain yeah um, but Ian and I both listened to All Roads Lead to Wembley a uh, a bootleg a great another great bootleg uh, title. Um, and uh, that is just taken from the the soundboards uh, from the Wembley show, right? And um, that's the one with the sort of botched uh, launch of Joker Man. But um, anyway, here we have another uh, lesser than Joker Man uh, cut from Infidels appearing. And it's I and I, which is of course a record or a song we talked about on our last episode. And uh, listening to it again, I feel like this is the closest thing that we'll ever get. I mean, you never know what might happen in the future, but um, if Bob Dylan had written a a song for a James Bond movie introduction, mm-hmm. I feel like. This is about what you'd expect. Right. It has this weird, like, whenever I was, uh, when I was in a band, um, you know, I still make music occasionally, but like we would be jamming and like something that I feel like is a, a weird, an annoying thing that happens sometimes is like you're trying to come up with a good, like, cool post punky type riff. And it always is a disappointment when it ends up sounding like spy movie music. <laughs> and this just happens sometimes. You accidentally do something that sounds like spy music. <laughs> and uh, this, this song has a bit of that. Yeah, I see. I see the similarities between a song like this and like "Live and Let Die" or right, something. Right, that's, exa- that's exactly what I'm thinking is, about. This is the Bob Dylan version of "Live and Let Die." I guess Bob Dylan was just too all-American to uh, be considered for a, a James Bond picture. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I do think that this is so. You've got two infidel songs on this record. This one and the, actually the very next one, "License to Kill." Uh, of of your two Infidels tracks on this album, I do think this is the more successful one. Um, I actually kind of like the the uh, you know this this very sort of dry and didactic and um, you know just um, uh, straightforward kind of uh, macho approach that we've talked about so far. I think that actually suits this song somehow. I agree. Uh, I, I think it's better than the than the record version. Yeah, yeah. I think I think this is an improvement on on the on the recorded version. Uh, but the song itself is still just like weird, and well, the lyrics it's and the still chorus got that is, chorus problem. Yeah, like it's, I, I just like you're never gonna get around uh, in creation where, where one's nature neither honors nor forgives. forgives. It's like. Just, and then the, on, the other half of the chorus is again we we've, we've discussed this in the last episode, but it's so much more a piece with it's like what other song has a chorus that is so different from the vibe of the rest of the song? Um, even the other half of the chorus, like the the bit about like one says to the other, "No man sees my face and lives," like that. 
that especially is a very James Bondian type of vibe. Right. Um, but yeah, that's supposed to just hitch along with that bit that sounds like it's from a philosophy paper. <laughs> it's uh, it, it's really a in creation where it's that's what you'd call fake Dylan. It's like yeah. it's like Dylan Dylan esque in the bad way, like trying to sound smart. It's a confounding kind of lyric, you know. There's no, no two ways around it, and especially you know, with a, a a title and a refrain like "I and I," which seems right. to have so much potential for something like like a provocative personal lyric um, to to go along with that, and he just doesn't give it to you, and and gives you something so heady that it's impenetrable in a song that is actually really vibey and has like a mood that is really compelling and of all the songs on this live record i think the guitar heroics kind of work the best on this one yeah of the of the electric songs on this album uh, yeah the soloing is probably I mean, yeah, the best, um, the, the best of of those. But I'm, but it's still you know you 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 can't you, you can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. Right. I, I don't know if I have anything more to say about it. What about you? Uh, no. Uh, you know, it is it is what it is. To quote uh, Joe Pesci in The Irishman. That's right. I'm um, thinking about that. The Irishman? Yeah. Did you see The Irishman in theaters? No, I remember we were trying to figure out a time to go see it together, and I was, I had a bunch of shit going on, and then you just went and saw it at um, I saw IFC, it at right? IFC, yeah. Yeah. Not, a, you go not a huge screen. Yeah, I saw I saw it with Michael. Michael did yeah. area of the lemon twigs, and I had to pee, I think we both had to pee like an hour into it. Right, and then there's two hours more long. hours. <laughs> yeah. But uh, good picture, good film. Yeah. Um, anyway, we were just talking about 007 and James Bond. And the next song is called License to Kill, uh, which is actually very uh, directly James Bond-like, uh, of course. <laughs> but um, this one doesn't sound like a James Bond song, and it's also from Infidels. And the uh, inverse of the last one is true on this, in that I think the recorded version is far superior to what we have on real live. Yes. This one, especially uh, the beginning, it just is like a really rough takeoff. Um, So blunted. None of that delicacy is there, and... It's a song that I think really works because it's so um, sort of feminine. The themes of it and everything about the song is very feminine and very um, like has like a righteous, like a simmering anger or something behind it. Um, Whereas this, it just feels like, again, we're faced with this 
this problem of this record, which is it's just too belligerent for its own good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's uh, there, there's not not a whole lot to to say in 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 favor of this song. I you know I think that this is one of the not the worst not one of the worst songs on Infidels, but certainly not one of the best either. Uh, and this is yeah, I, I agree with you. I think I think that where I and I benefits from the uh, uh, to an extent, it benefits from the uh, this this approach to the sound here on this record. This one actually, you know, it takes a step back. Uh, this this also I think is when for me, at least when you're listening through this record, you know, from beginning to end chronologically, this is when Bob's vocals really begin to sort of make themselves apparent. He switches back and forth, I think, between these two modes, one of which is just completely disengaged and going through the motions, and the other, uh, which is almost almost sort of like a parody of himself. It's the he, it's where you get that, like, I do it all the time, and it's, like, stupid, but, like, you know, that joke Bob Dylan voice, it's where that really first appears in full force. Yeah, the, force, the nasal the nasal whine that you know so many pedants um, uh, carry on about. You know, Bob is not a good singer because he's got this nasally whine. They're all, all incorrect, obviously, but like you know, <laughs> it really is coming on strong on some of these songs on this record. I can abide Bob Dylan being nasal as hell till the cows come home. It's when he does it in this way that feels like letting it thud. He doesn't, like, uh, aim it, so to speak. Like, Sure. The recorded version of this song, if it works at all, which I think it basically does, and I think it could work better even, like, potentially, um, is if the the chorus the the refrain of who's going to take away his license to kill i think it can be very cheesy or it can be actually like kind of heartbreaking if it's actually posed as a real question um and here the way bob delivers it is just like his license to kill he yeah. just tosses it out there in a way that feels totally like just inappropriate for the subject matter, and there's no hope for this song to be poignant. Yeah, it's just not you know it, it's a real a real kind of downer. <laughs> this this album begins on a low note and keeps going lower. I would say, or 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 to uh, move it on here to the end of the first side, and we have yet to really get any song, uh, any any single song that is worth listening to whatsoever. Although, I think, to for my money, uh, here, you know, kind of closing out this first side, In It Me Babe, yeah. uh, is, is probably the strongest of, of these of these tracks I, on this first side. I, I definitely agree. And and this is a song I've, I've said before that I don't really care for. Um, but, boy, there's nothing like listening to this record to make me realize um, that it has a lot going for it. And um, the way that it was performed um, at this show is the first time, really, that we're hearing this on this record thus far, which is not uh, not that cock rock style. It's right. really straightforward, 
and letting the song speak for itself. And I think Bob gives it, by doing this, whether he realizes it or not, he it seems like he really creates space for himself to connect with the song. And that's like what's missing from everything before this is there's so much firepower that doesn't actually help. Um, and these songs have all of them, even I and I could be better with a less fiery production. Right. They uh, benefit from giving them a little bit of a lighter touch musically. Yeah. This is a much needed sort of change of pace. I think that we're getting on this album at this point, this is the first of, uh, you know, a couple acoustic tracks on this record. You know, I, I don't, I don't know where it was situated in the set list in the actual live performance, but, um, you know, most of the tracks were, uh, were this, this very heavy thudding, inelegant rock and roll sound. Uh, and, and they were broken up by a few of these, you know, just solo Bob and acoustic guitar and harmonica kind of tracks. And this is the first one that appears on the record. And it's, it's a very, it's a very nice change of pace. Um, and I think the, the song itself, I, I actually like this song. Um, I do I too, is, actually. I think that honestly, this version helped me realize I like it, uh, more than I thought I did. Good. Yeah. I, I think it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a great song. Um, and definitely significant in terms of his evolution. You know, I think, I think it's the last song on another side. Um, and you know, really the last acoustics, uh, like the last acoustic song you get for him before he plugs in and turns on, you know, uh, turns up the volume for the first time with, um, subterranean homesick blues on the next record. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it's a very, just kind of appropriate kind of bookend to the, um, to to his career as a protest singer, um, in in that this isn't a protest song. This is him protesting his reputation as a protest singer. Um, uh, but uh, but yeah, I, I think it's I think it's good. I, I like it. Um, this is the only. This is the second. I think of this is the yeah the second time that this song has appeared on a live record. The first one was on Before the Flood, uh, and this is rarely on for for real live. This is actually a, a a stronger version to me because it's 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 true to what the song actually is in terms of the mood. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Before the Flood version is that is that same kind of you know wild eyed, uh, cocaine driven, uh, psychosis kind of blown out you know, fat stadium rock sound that just doesn't, doesn't make sense for, for a lyric and a song like this. Um, and, uh, and this version, this version, he definitely does. Uh, the, uh, the, <laughs> that nasally whine is very apparent here. Once again, uh, leave at your own chosen speed. Yeah. But, um, but it's used effectively. Yeah, I yeah, I agree. I think it's I think it's deployed in an artistic manner and it, and I also do find it genuinely kind of um endearing as endearing as anything is on this record when Bob actually lets the audience sing the chorus for himself a couple of times. The audience actually sounds good, you know. They, yeah. It it's kind of cool to hear this the Brits they love this, you know, they eat this up. And to some extent I wonder if he was just like hoping to really pull out the Americana stops by doing a real rock and roll show for them over uh, uh, on the other side of the pond. But um, I feel like this is a 
clear moment where the audience is more connected than any other part of as much as you can hear them. Um, and that harmonica, I think that's what stand, stands out to me in, in this song, in this version, is yep. that's where you really hear, you can really feel this palpable energy when he does that insistent, repetitive harmonica um, solo. And, mm-hmm. and then that moment when the guitar, um, there's like a chord progression that's pretty like, consistent and then it it develops a little bit and it it has that change that i don't know what chord he's playing but do you know what i mean that little shift where it becomes like uh it's like acknowledging that it's been like going for a while it it's really good and like just emotionally resonant and you can hear that in the crowd um it makes it a high point of this whole record i think yeah absolutely i think it's undoubtedly the the highest point of the first side uh and um uh, yeah i mean it's 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 an old song at this point you know it's 20 years old uh and it's it's not even the first live version of it that we get but (laughs) considering the the very meager material we have to work with on this album it's uh it's it's about as good as you're gonna get and uh, and yeah, he he sounds engaged. I think is is really the difference here. You know, he's it because it's just him up there on on the stage at this point. You know, and it's just him and his guitar and and his harmonica, and uh, and there's some nice guitar playing here. It's it's very clean and uh, nimble, uh, as is necessary for this song. Uh, and um, and yeah, he's he's into he's into the harmonica performance. He's into the vocals, and it's just uh, you know it it it's a peek at what he's still capable of even even in this diminished state, I would say. Yes, I have to agree. Hmm. Uh, so I guess that, uh, unless you have any other comments. No, <laughs> I'm honestly like a little wiped out from just being so negative. I don't even, it's not like I have fun doing that, but um, he's given me no choice. You know, it's 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 tough love. You gotta be, you gotta be honest with with uh, honest with, with me, love. Uh, one of Bob Bob Dylan's later songs, "Honest with no. Me." Do you know that one? Uh, what what album is that off of? That's a uh, Love and Theft. Love and Theft. Okay, yeah, yeah. I haven't done my homework on Love and Theft quite as much as I should. It's a good one. Yeah, we'll we'll get there. Uh, released on September eleventh, two thousand one. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a day that is famous for that release. That's the most notable thing that happened on September 11, 2001, is the release of Bob Dylan's studio album, Love and Theft. I think there's actually a few records that were released that day. I think that there's a They Might Be Giants record that was released that day. Uh, Mariah Carey. Hmm. Uh, Glitter, that's the uh, record. Jay-Z, The Blueprint. I'm pretty sure that there's... Uh, I think M- Mink Car maybe was released. That's right, yeah. Mink Car by uh, They Might Be Giants. 9-11 record. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Pretty good uh, record. I like They Might Be Giants. Do you know them at all? Uh, I, I think the only They Might Be Giants song I've ever heard is the one that is the Malcolm in the Middle song. Oh, well, you know. It's a they're a band that I 
I totally understand people like really not liking them. Um, I can't say that I have anything against them. I just can't say I have anything for them either. I'm alone uh, in so many ways. I'm alone in my Van Morrison. Uh, Stay tuned I'm, for I'm, the second spinoff Jokerman podcast where Evan just talks about I'm alone and they, uh, might be gi- they might be giants for hours on end. You know, when I get really drunk, like it's just not that not that often these days. You know, I I, I moderate, but um, whenever I'm like close to blackout drunk, I end up listening to them. They might be giants. Maybe that should be the Patreon. Is instead of like additional Bob stuff, it's just it, it, the Patreon episodes are just you prattling on about Van Morrison for hours, and I can do the same sort of episodes about Steely Dan. Uh, this is a there's a fatal flaw in your plan there, which is nobody wants to pay for that. <laughs> I guess that's a good point. Um, uh, well, um, tune in next I week. Was, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I think we're done. Well, later yeah. this week. Yeah. That's right. Uh, later this week for side B of real life. <laughs> yeah, when next in the next episode when we when we literally record for an hour and a half about the worst live album that Bob has ever <laughs> released in 1984. Yeah. Uh, all right. Bye bye, yeah. Joker man. <laughs>